0: God bless good morning it 's good to see you guys here this morning uh, i 'm a little terrified this morning um, as I go through some of these uh, books and share some of the things that I do with you i I find myself confronted with a lot of the things that i 'm reading and seeing how am I living out these things and This is one of those times where I just felt uh, very uh, connected to it, but in a way that was very uncomfortable, a way that was just kind of pushing me in an area in a way way that I didn't really want to go, but felt I needed to go, and I guess you'll see as time goes on, uh, hopefully... You guys will still like me after today. Um, Anyway, just, yeah, you'll let me know. Uh, uh, Let's pause once again and let's pray as we get started this morning. This is more for me than for you guys, but let's pray. Lord, as we are looking at what it is to live lives that are missional, Lord, it is challenging me and it is challenging us to become the church, to live as Christ and to follow in your steps. And I pray this morning you would give me clarity of thought and communication, Lord, that it would be something that would encourage us to draw near to you. I pray that my words would not be a discouragement to anybody. Father, I pray that your spirit would speak into our hearts, that we would hear your voice and allow you that place in our lives. We thank you for this time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been going through this series on Essentials, remember Essentials isn't about believing the right things. This is about becoming the right people. It's essential that we live our lives so that people see us and identify us with Christ. It's been said that the early church... Right, Follow Jesus, and the world, unbelieving world, called them Christians. And today, the church calls themselves Christians, and the unbelieving world calls them us hypocrites. Because we are not living like Jesus as we should. And that's really what I want to focus on this morning is how things have changed. So this morning, I'm going to talk about school, work, and faith, the Wizard of Oz, Christendom, ancient Rome, and abortion. Yep, it's going to be a great time. Okay, open to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, we're going to start at verse 1, go through verse 11. It's a passage that I think a lot of us are familiar with, especially verse 11. But the context is really important here says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. That's the stage that is being set. This is the time, and this is the people who it's being written to. Verse three He entrusted the letter to Elisha, son of Saphan, and to Jemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you have come When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back into this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've read that last verse, right? Verse 11 is like one of those promises that you get in the little promise things that you have, right? They used to have little loaves of bread, right? Your daily bread, and you'd pull out a scripture. It was one of those that probably had it in there a few times, right? Because it's such a beautiful passage, but the context here is so important because the nation is in captivity. They're in exile, and they are being told, settle down where you are. Plant fields, have your kids get married, prosper where you are because if the city prospers, you prosper. It's going to be a while, 70 years before you come back to the land. So in the meantime, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to live at peace where you are at so that you can do well with the people that you are with. Imagine having to relocate. And this isn't just moving, this is being taken. You don't have time to pack the U-Haul. This is you just being relocated, relocated to a whole different place. Now, it's not only a different city, it's a different culture. They speak a different language. They eat different food. They have a different way of worshiping and living. And you are dropped into this place. Change is hard. It forces us to grow in ways that we couldn't until we were put into a place that forced us to change. I've had a number of jobs where I've had to learn something new. I was working in constructions for years, and things weren't going well, and I was offered a job to work at a lumberyard, and so I said, okay, I'll take this job, but it was like, I don't know lumber, right? I'm working at this place and I remember I was working out in the yard and I was, you know, moving this lumber and I'm doing all this physical labor and I I mean, I was younger than I am today but I wasn't young, you know? I was still kind of... Man, this is a lot of work. And what they called me was a yard dog. That was the name that they gave you. And so I remember being out there huffing this lumber, and I'm sweating, and I'm working. And then I hear these guys talking. Oh, yeah, he's here. Yeah, he's working me. He's their new yard dog. Yeah, but he doesn't know anything. And I remember just thinking, I'm a yard dog that doesn't know anything, right? (laughs) This is a very encouraging moment in my life, right? Starting over, it's hard. I went to three different high schools. I have no school spirit, right? I went to Santa Monica High School. I went to Charter Oak High School, which isn't even there anymore, and I graduated Glendora High School, and I have no, woohoo hoo yay, I haven't been to any class reunions. I guess I could go, but why? You know, I didn't really get Connected. And it was hard You go into the middle of a semester and you move and you're the new kid, right? And you just feel like everyone's staring at you. You feel awkward already because you're a teenager and then be placed in a place where everyone already knows each other and you're the new kid. It's hard. Change is difficult. And even in areas of faith, you know, there was a time where I was So sure of everything I believed. Oh, I said, oh, yes, I I still am learning. But I had the Bible figured out. I had God figured out. And I could try and explain everything, and I would try to do that. I would try to argue, and I would be, you know, one of these apologetic people Will try and give this defense of my faith and stuff. And I became aware that God is much bigger then my mind is able to comprehend that I am able to understand. And all of a sudden, my world started changing. And and my whole idea of being a follower of Jesus was to be in full-time ministry. That's what it meant. Oh, I got to be in full-time ministry. That was the pinnacle. If I'm in full-time ministry, I'm where God wants me to be. And I was in full-time ministry, and I was at an office with no windows and I was there 6-7 days a week all the time and I didn't see anybody outside the church. All I did was church business. And one day I just am reading the gospel and I'm thinking, I am nothing like Jesus. Jesus did not sit in an office and do work for the church. I have no friends who are not followers of Christ. Everyone's in the church. Jesus was a friend of sinners. I don't even have any friends. Well, I do, and they're Christians, and they're sinners too, but you know what I mean. It doesn't count. And I just thought, what am I doing here? How did I get to this place? And it was kind of an epiphany, and I started kind of pushing against where I was, and it didn't go well. And change ensued, and it was hard. And I've been having a crisis of faith for the last 10 years, but I'm closer to God than I've ever been. God is a mystery that I'm endlessly understanding and seeking, but I don't have it figured out. And there's things that come up in conversations. And, and even just Friday night, had a dinner with Ted and Margie. We went and saw The Green Book, which is a great movie if you haven't seen it. And we were talking, and we started talking about some things. And I just said, I'm not sure what I believe about this because I'm not. There's a lot of things I'm not sure about. I'm still wrestling with them, and, and yeah, I, I look at things in, in the scripture, and I'm trying to figure out, God, where are you in all these things? How are you showing up? Remember in the Wizard of Oz when Dorothy all of a sudden wakes up, and everything's in color, right? And she says, "What does she say? says, Toto? We're not in Kansas anymore, right?" We're somewhere different and things have changed. Sometimes I feel like that. I feel like Dorothy and I wake up and I'm just like, I'm not in Kansas anymore. All the things that brought me security and certainty, they don't bring that to me anymore. But it doesn't mean I'm insecure. I actually feel closer in my relationship with God than I've ever felt before. It's just not my certainty. It has to do with a lot more. Now, fast forward from this time where the children of Israel are exiled. They're in Babylon. They're in captivity. They're in a foreign land with foreign things happening around them. Fast forward now to the early church, the first century church. Jesus is there and he gives them this way of living that is totally contrary to the society that they're living in. He tells them, love your enemies, which would be the Roman Empire, would be the Samaritans for the Jews, and all those who are outside of their faith, the ones who are actually bringing persecution to them, the one who are in, responsible for the hostility, and he's saying to love them, it's a lot easier to hate people who are hurting you than it is to love people that are hurting you, right? Anyone with me on that? I mean, I just, it's so easy. (laughs) You wronged me, I hate you. You know, it just kind of flows out of your mouth, right? But loving them, it's like, You know, you have to do it through your teeth. It's doing something. It's bringing change within you to change how you interact with the world outside of you. And it's a difficult thing. And at this time, Christianity, Christians, those who are named after Jesus because they look like Christ, are a minority. Very small minority. Rome is the majority. They are the ones who are the dominant force in the world. And this small group of Christians, followers of this rabbi Jesus, are being told to live differently, to live how Christ lived. But even while they were living in the margins, with Rome in the majority, they had a way that began to change all of society. And so kind of a little history of what was taking place, right? The way that these Christians were living was so powerful that in 313 AD or CE, however you put it, the Roman emperor Constantine adopted Christian faith as his own and decided to replace paganism with Christianity as the official imperial religion. Now, understand, 200, 300 years earlier... Christians are being put to death, being fed to lions, being crucified by the thousands. They are hiding in homes and using symbols to show where they meet. They cannot meet in public any longer. They're kicked out of synagogues. They are the scourge of society. And now Constantine, the emperor, the one who was supposedly like God, says he's a Christian and now the nation is going to be Christian. He invited the church to come in from the margins of society where it had been operating for the last three centuries, and he sets in motion a process that would eventually bring all of Europe into a church state, something that is known as Christendom. Okay, It's difficult to overstate the impact that this has had on the Christian faith. Because it was enormous. Some of the changes that took place. The assumption that all citizens, if they're born into the Roman Empire, are now Christian. You're born here. You're a Christian by birth. Infant baptism as the symbol of being incorporated into Christian society. Now you can be brought in by having a child baptized. Okay, now he belongs to us. Sunday as a required day of church attendance with penalties for noncompliance. The construction of massive and ornate church buildings. Now, is anyone thinking, wait a second, right now, right? Is anyone going, huh? Okay, I, at least I did, right? And I was like, well, are you mandatory to go to church on Sunday? Because that's where I was. I had to, right? If you're a Christian, you got to go to church on Sunday. And buildings, well, that's a whole thing. A strong distinction between clergy and laity and the relegation of the laity to a more passive role. The leaders will do the work. You don't need to. You just need to give us the money. Which is the next one. The increased wealth of the church and the obligation of required tithes to fund the system. The division of the world into either Christendom or heathendom and waging war in the name of Christ and the church, right? Constantine had an army that now had shields that had crosses on them. How did that happen? How did we go from shields and armies with crosses on them to a cross where Jesus died being put to death by the Roman Empire? The use of political and military force to impose the Christian faith. And you can go back to history and find many accounts of that. So the effects of Christendom over the centuries is that Christianity moved from being a dynamic revolutionary social and spiritual movement to being a static religious institution with its corresponding structures, right? Priesthood, later pastors, and the rituals. These are the things that you do to be part of the church. And it moved from you are the church to you go to church. It moved from we are active members to now we are passive recipients. And it changed everything. Christian faith moved from an integrated way of life that was lived out every day of the week to an obligation that was filled by attending a service at a set time. The things have rippled throughout the century because of this incredible change that took place. And those rippling effects have affected all of Europe and have affected the United States. This idea of Christendom is something that has been a dominant theme, maybe not used in those words. Now, some of the evidences of this in the U.S., well, it could be the missions that were established by the Spaniards, right, by the Catholic Church. That was part of this kind of global outreach conquest. The colonies, the Protestants who came out here to have religious freedom from the Church of England and established the colonies and how they went about continuing these things. Bibles used to be the textbooks in the schools, right? They would have Bibles there. Prayer was in school. Sundays were the time of worship. Remember stores used to be closed on Sundays? Do you, any of you remember that? Yes. Any of you not remember that? And Any of you, like, stores have always been open as long as I remember, right? Some of you, I know that. <laughs> These are all signs of the far-reaching extent of Christendom. Now, before you think, oh, yeah, the good old days. Oh, when we used to have prayer in school. The Bible used to be our textbook. Those things all sound great, but remember all the other things that were going on. Remember this idea of Christendom is not that of an active life. It is one of a passive life that is being given by authority, by the church, by something other than the Spirit of God moving in the hearts of people. Because at the same time that these other things were happening the Bibles that they read in school were being used to justify slavery. That was in the church, okay? And segregation wasn't illegal until 1964. That's not very long ago. Women... We're not allowed to vote until 1920. They were not allowed to run in marathons till 1970. Is that crazy? And could not have credit cards till 1974. Good old days, right? And these things being done in the name of Jesus. Jesus. This whole idea of the church, Christian society, and these things are still taking place. And many of these things were maintained using Scripture as its foundation. But unlike the Jews who were in exile, who were taken there by themselves and, and longed to go back to Israel... We might feel like we're in exile today. We might feel like, oh man, we've strayed so far from some of those morals that we used to hold on to. Things that are so distant from what they used to be. But let's not desire to go back to Christendom. Let's not go back to a place where we are not active participants in the work of God and move to a place of religious obligation. God is not calling us to return to things of old, but to participate in something completely new. And there are so many things we see and wonder, what is going on with the world? And maybe it's because of media and the ability to get so much information so easily that we are more aware than we've ever been. That we are confronted with the problems of refugees, of human trafficking. That these things are in the news all the time that are on our computer screens. The talks of abortion and the things going on in our culture, and our society right now. And we wonder, how can these things be? How can there still be these kinds of things taking place And sometimes you feel like Dorothy back in The Wizard of Oz and you just say, I'm not in Kansas anymore. This isn't the society I remember or I grew up in and things have changed so much and we wonder what's going on and how do we get to a place where things are are better. And it might be a hard pill to swallow, but I've got to say that the United States is not a Christian nation. I'm not saying this to diminish... The United States as a country, but to rekindle the intent and meaning of the word Christian. You see, only you bear the image of God. Only you can look like Christ. A country cannot. Clothing cannot. Buildings cannot. Churches cannot look like Jesus. Only People can look like Jesus. And until we understand that that is our obligation to look like Christ, we will fall back into a Christendom that took the power that was in those early followers of Christ and changed the Roman Empire and release it back to others to be in control with. And it forces us or it doesn't force us to change And we are being called to be the church, to live like Christ, to be the change that the world needs. And like it or not, we find ourselves actually back in the margins like that first century. We're not the overwhelming population in the world. A post Christendom, it's called. Europe, it was long past, and it's that way in the United States. Now, some people are like, no, we're holding on. What are you holding on to? A tradition of the past, a Christendom, or Christ? Because there's a difference. I want you to hold on to Christ. I want you to hold on to all the things that are like Christ, but I don't want you to hold on to a tradition that took the power out of your obligation to live like Jesus. That's not healthy for any of us. And I know at times we can feel like we're exiles in an unknown and foreign land. But unlike the exiles, let's not go back. Instead, let's seek to bring life and vitality to the land that we're living in, to the neighborhoods that we're in, to the kingdom of God that we're a part of. Let's bring that life to where we are instead of trying to go back and gain something that we feel was taken from us. Jesus said, The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I am not worried about society falling. I am concerned of people who follow Jesus not living. Because if that happens, then things will fall. The minority changed the Roman Empire. You think it can't do the same thing today? I believe it can. I mean, first century Rome was a brutal world. As bad as things are today, with all those things I've mentioned, Rome was much worse. Incredibly so. Poverty, persecution were intense. But Christianity thrived. How? In Rome, they would have places set where they could discard their children if they didn't want them. There would be places, and you could just leave your kids there, but it wasn't like a fire station, right? It was just like a a temple in front. You'd just leave the baby there, and they thought, well, maybe someone will want a baby and go pick it up. But a lot of them didn't. And a lot of the reasons they discarded the children was for economic reasons. We can't afford a baby. We'll just leave it. The baby dies. Oh, well, we just can't afford it. Uh, birth defects. The baby is born with some kind of defect. Okay, this isn't, we don't want this, so the baby is left to the side there. Uh, illegitimacy, right? It wasn't my husband's kid, whatever, okay, the baby gets left there. Gender, it's a girl, and we want our family name to continue, and the girl's not going to continue the name, and we can't afford a baby, so the baby is left and discarded, okay? That's what happened in Rome. So when we talk about abortion and some of the things taking place, understand That this was a prevalent thing in the Roman Empire. Now, what did the followers of Jesus do? How did they deal with this terrible atrocity that was going on? Children just being left to die. They would go and they would pick up the children and raise them as their own, even though they were poor themselves. It's a girl. It's okay. We're going to take her. The baby has defects. It's okay. We're going to take them. They started adopting these children as their own. And pretty soon, they are growing in numbers, and it's not even their own kids. And the other people who know, yeah, you know, they left their kid, and now so-and-so picked them up, and they're raising your child. Imagine that. Imagine that when you see them walking and they're carrying the kid and it's your kid. Imagine that. Imagine the pull on your heart when you see those things taking place. The fourth century and Emperor Julian talked about Christianity taking over and after Constantine all this, he was against it. And so he was writing to confront the Christians, and he called them atheists because they didn't believe in the pagan gods, and so that's the term he used for them, or Galileans, because of Jesus' reference from Galilee. And here's what he writes, the 4th century emperor Julian, he says, referring to them as Galileans and atheans, because of their denial of the existence of the pagan gods and believing their religion, he says, why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves, meaning the kids, of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism or Christianity, in his words. I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues, for it is disgraceful that when... The impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men will see that our people lack aid from us. They're making us look bad. Why? Because they're doing good. They didn't shine a light on their darkness. They were the light in the midst of their darkness. They didn't go around saying, you guys are doing these bad things. They went around doing the good things that brought an awareness of the wrong things that we are doing. So how do we, in this new 30 AD, if we call it, right, this new minority of where we are at, how do we propose to change things? the area of abortion. Recognize, first of all, that there are women here who've had abortions. There are women here who've had abortion in the last trimester of the childbirth. Going through statistics, up to 10% of The women who have abortions are ages 13 and under 20, 10%. 25% are those who economically can't afford to have children. And then there's some that are because of defects, there are some because of inconvenience. And these things aren't very far from what was happening with Rome. And instead of making... A lot of noise. But not helping the situation. What can we do to help the situation? Some statistics. Because I I get upset when I hear things that are meant to move us to support a Christendom. That have no bearing on the heart and what God really is wanting to do. Some statistics. On abortion. In 19... 84. This is both the Guttmacher and the CDC accounts. There was approximately 1,577,000 abortions that took place a year. In the year 2015 to 2018, it is less than half, as low as 638,000. How come there is such a decrease, and why aren't we hearing about it? I'm not saying that it's okay, but I have been in pews listening to pastors telling me how to vote because if I want to vote pro-life to stop this, but no president, no Supreme Court justice has changed the amount of abortions taking place, but it has been reduced and no one's asking why has to do because of birth control. It has to do a lot because of education. What do we want? Do we want to promote a cause, or do we want to help that 13-year-old who's been shamed because she's pregnant and doesn't know what to do, and to her, the only thing that seems reasonable is to abort this baby. I know a family... whose child got his girlfriend pregnant. They didn't tell the family until the ninth month because they were afraid. A Christian family. The family loves them, but without even knowing it, there is this sense of shame. You see, it used to be these Christians... Will embrace you. Will take your kids. They will help you wherever you're at. But now, as there is this sense, we'll, we don't want to show up and be pregnant and not married. To be pregnant and be underage. To to. And you can fill in the blanks. And because there is this, no, we, we can't do this. It's not right in our society to look this way. There is this overwhelming shame. And so many people here have been in that situation. And so when we speak, remember you are speaking to your sisters. You're speaking to your family. And it's love that is needed. Not guilt, not shame, not condemnation. Because we will not change the world by condemning it. Jesus says, I came into the world not to condemn the world, but so the world can have life. I want the world to change. I need to be the change. I need to be the person who steps out and extends myself. Because that's what Jesus did. I need to be the person who shows love and kindness and support instead of making someone feel like they can't come to me if there's a problem. That they're not welcome here if there's a problem. I want our community to be a place where I, it doesn't really matter what's gone on in your life you're welcome here. Because we all got stuff. And I feel no need to tell you mine. <laughs> I want to end in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. Now, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, Paul writing. He's rejoicing because he's suffering for them. And I fill up in my flesh... What is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction? Let that sink in. What is lacking in Christ's affliction? That's a powerful sentence right there. What is lacking in Christ's affliction? How is Paul fulfilling in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction? I thought Christ's affliction was complete, total, and there's nothing to be added. How is he then filling up in his flesh what is lacking? I just want you to think about that because there's a gem there. And it has to do with how he's living. For the sake of his body, which is the church, right? I have become its servant. He's telling us how. I have become its servant, the church's servant who Christ died for, the people, which is the church. It is Christ in you, not in an organization, not in a country, not in a church building or a denomination. It is Christ in you. The hope is always speaking of the future. Glory is something that has weight. It has substance. You are the substance of people's hope for the future. We have to embrace that. It consumes me. It haunts me. It makes me tremble. Because I want to be that. And I need to live up to this. I don't want to live less. I want to live more. There are people who are hurting. And I have to be the one who extends myself to them. You have to be the one who extends yourself. You are the hope in their future. You are the substance of that hope. Because it is Christ in you. We need to embrace this. And we need to do more than talk about things or complain about things or protest about things. We need to live a faith that reaches the people who are in the worst conditions because that's how the church changed the empire and that's how we are going to change wherever we are in the world Whether it be in the United States, whether it be in Saudi Arabia, whether it be in Russia, whether it be in China, it is still Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that my words did not move anybody away from you. Lord, it's not my intent to offend anyone. It is my desire to challenge myself and us to be more like you. So I pray for the things that I've shared, Lord, that things resonate, calling us to live a life that is on mission, calling us to live lives that are dynamically connected to you and to the world around us. And for all those who are wounded, are hurt, or even disagree, Lord, may we be a hand extended to them. May we be the light that shines. May our words not be empty. Might they be filled with the action and love that your spirit gives us. And I pray for us here at Genesis. I pray for everyone here And all the secrets that we hold. All the shame that we've carried. Lord, I pray that we would all recognize that even like the woman caught in adultery, it's before you there's forgiveness. It is before you that we find no condemnation we can come before you any time. May we be known as a people who love one another, who embrace the brokenhearted, that extend ourselves to those who the world casts out, who the church casts out. May we not become religious. May we not go back to Christendom, but may we move forward to your kingdom. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. I want you guys to know that I don't have the answers. And if you disagree with me in these things, I'm okay with that. I'm open to talk to you. I'm open to be enlightened by you. I'm crawling to find my way. I am desiring to get close to God and live how I can. I welcome the conversations. If you disagree with me adamantly, let's talk. Let's talk. I need to learn and we need to stay in communications. Our life is too important to let disagreement stop us from God bless you guys. Thank you for being here. Thank you for putting up with me and all these things. Thank you, guys. God bless you. You have been listening to the Genesis podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.